if you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast for a few good reasons. First of all, it's free, so you really have nothing to lose. They have so many tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. So you can just be lying in your bed and record your podcast and they will also distribute the podcast for you. So it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and many, many more platforms. You can also make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. So download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Social media has not been around long enough, so we don't have 50-year-olds that can reflect on what it was like to go through puberty with it. And so they want to say things like, get off social media, oh my God, these kids these days with their head in their phone. And that really bothers me, but it's also really, really unhelpful. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to a new episode of Intangible Conversations. I'm your host, Karima Alba, and this week I talked to Bailey Parnell. She is the founder and CEO of Skills Camp and Safe Social, and she was named one of Canada's top 100 most powerful women. She's an entrepreneur with a talent for helping people develop the skills they need for success, which is what she's trying to accomplish with her two companies, Skills Camp and Safe social but we talk more in depth about that during our conversation so i love talking to her and i really hope that you will learn a thing or two um so this is the lovely bailey So before we dive into your, your company skills camp, can you walk us through a bit, starting off maybe um, a couple of years before you founded the company, just so people who are listening and who don't know you can have a better insight of who you are and what you do? Sure. So right now I own a soft skills training company called Skills Camp, which you mentioned, and we partner with a lot of organizations and higher ed institutions to build soft skills in their staff and students. And that could be anything from resilience to self-awareness to emotional intelligence, a lot of uh, professional communication recently, intergenerational work, that sort of stuff. And then the other half of my life and my research is about social media's impact on mental health. And during the pandemic, I actually launched another organization called Save Social about that. Now, if you want to rewind, um, you know, maybe three to five years, both of those organizations actually got their start at the same place. And before I went full time with my business, I worked at Ryerson University in Toronto, Canada. And uh, for international listeners, if you know, uh, kind of like it's kind of like the NYU of, of Canada. So essentially kind of that city school, very downtown and um, and 
so while I was there, I was working in student affairs, which is kind of everything outside the classroom that supports student success, like career centers and health and wellness departments. And my role was a little bit of everything. I kind of wrote, the, I actually literally wrote the job description. <laughs> and it was a bit of research and a lot of storytelling, marketing, but also helping these departments um, with their facilitation and kind of updating and innovating their programming. And so really this was the impetus for both Skills Camp and Safe Social because on the Skills Camp side of things, it was very clear that the students who used um, student affairs, that they were more successful, but that the reality is and still is that most don't use it. And then it became clear over time that this is not just a student issue, that students who suck with communication or teamwork that lasts right into the work world. And then once you get into the work world, it becomes actually quite a costly issue. So then it was snowballing, there was research coming out and really this problem arose and I just thought I was the perfect person to solve it because of my unique career history, which I'm sure we'll get into eventually. Yes, but um, I kind of had the, all the pieces that go into this exact kind of business, both from the sales and marketing and presentation and speaking side, as well as the pedagogical education, what we teach side. And then we can probably, I'm sure, get into safe social eventually as well. But that was start, that started um, at Ryerson as well, probably about five years ago. But the TED Talk came out in, uh, I think, 2017. So you have always been into the online market. So you have always been interested in social media and in digital everything <laughs> what happens online well actually at the very beginning of my career i wanted to do foreign news journalism and so i actually went and did my undergrad in um, media production and i minored in english and i minored double minored in news studies and um and my focus in that program was actually on air journalism so that's what i did and i actually did work at a, at a bunch of news agencies and then, um, and then I got into the world of social and digital marketing, though this would have been around, I want to say 20, between 2011 and 2015. So, you know, we still didn't have TikTok or Snapchat and Instagram was kind of just popping off. So it's really come a long way even since then. But one of the things I was responsible for at Ryerson was investigating and really creating really initial models for digital student engagement, models that we then shared across the world, actually. Um, went down to the States a lot to share, went, went to Australia. Um, these models basically saying, how can we use these tools to actually enrich and engage students' experience here? And that was, again, just kind of coming out. So then after doing that for a few years, my question ended up being, and this is kind of what led to the whole, my whole world of social media and mental health, which was, okay, we're starting to see these articles coming out saying that it might not be safe, like, you know, it might not, it might be causing depression. And so I'm there saying, okay, well, if I'm going to be the person literally here telling students to be on social media, I also have a responsibility to make sure that they can do it safely. And that started professional research. And then because I was doing the research anyways, I thought, well, I may as well get a degree out of this. So that led to the academic research. And now here we are today. Interesting. No, I absolutely want to get into safe social, but let's start off with skill scam. So can you explain what that is and how people can participate? Yeah. So skills camp is a uh, soft skills training company, as I mentioned, and right now we're actually 
pretty exclusively B2B, so business to business, meaning that we work with other corporations or nonprofits or schools that usually bring us in on behalf of their people. So it's a manager, an HR director, a professor, uh, let's see, like someone usually in learning and development or just someone who's kind of wants to have a team social, but doesn't want to do, you know, let's get drinks again, kind of wants to add a learning element. All these would be client case studies and they'll reach out to us usually with a goal or a problem that they're trying to solve. And they might say, you know, my people are not really getting along or right now a big concern is uh, stress management and community mental health within organizations. So they're saying, can you, or remote communication skills, (laughs) like this kind of stuff. So they're coming to us with those problems or just, you know, we want to run employee development, professional development. And then we choose the skills that we think will best solve the problem or meet the goals. And that's usually a combination of some like communication or emotional intelligence or putting it together with cross-cultural communication. That's where our real like um, curriculum design comes in. And then we choose delivery. So when we work with an organization, it could be two weeks as a solid program. It could be kind of a day retreat. And then, um, or, or very often it would be like a program of half days or full days across a year, whatever that might be. And then COVID hit, of course. And now it's, um, we took a huge dip for probably three to four months um, because I, I remember the phases and I'm still go, we're still going through the phases. Like we're, we're okay and we're in the green. So we're doing a lot better, like than a lot of companies, but, but um, because of, I guess, planning and financial fiscal responsibility (laughs) but when it came yeah we absolutely went from 100 to zero when COVID hit like the pipeline was juicy and then it was zero because of no public gatherings and at the same time I remember the phase for the first few months um kind of like March to July almost was I I wasn't even having the conversation with companies to consider online programming. It was very clear that they were still having the conversation about can they afford people, period. They were still thinking about money in general and what's this going to mean for the organization, not can should we move our learning online, but sh- can we afford learning, period. Mm-hmm. So now I'm now fast forward to August and July and August, I've definitely seen more uptake and we're now because we're forced to be exclusively online. So that's kind of a long explanation, but as an individual listening, I don't have much for you yet on skills camp. However, through COVID and was always the plan in 2020, we will be launching an online soft skills portal coming soon. So you can take our online courses. Mm -hmm. Um, We're going to launch with six And those are six of our most popular, which are conflict resolution, exceptional communication, emotional intelligence, giving and receiving feedback, stress management, personal branding. Mm -hmm. And um, you can either buy access to one course for a year or you can buy access to the whole portal for a year. And so that will be our first kind of B2C offering, but still, again, mostly actually B2B. (laughs) What can you say to people who were planning to launch a brand or a company or anything and then COVID hit? Is it a a good time to even start something, to start a business? Or do you think, no, just wait it out until everything passes and then move on with the plan? I think like most things, it depends on the kind of business you're trying to start or trying Mm -hmm. to pivot. Mm -hmm. I have... uh, you know, we had always offered online programming, we, but 
still, even before COVID, we um, probably 95% of what we were sought out for was in-person programming. Mm -hmm. So pretty quickly, we had to kind of reconfigure the website, add new copy, make that the focus. Um, We got certified, even though um, it's like this certification to say that you are an e-virtual presenter. And this was actually less for us because we know what we're doing. It was more for clients to say, especially because on on the side, we're also public speakers, regardless of being facilitators. Mm -hmm. And so we had to say to clients like, hey, look, we got this certification just so you know that we know how to do Zoom, you know, that we know how to like, we're not going to, that we understand external audio, like that we're not going to mess this up and make your people look at a screen for three hours. (laughs) So um, we had to kind of configure all that. Now, if someone's looking to to pivot their business right now, well, well, you're going to have to pivot to stay alive. But if you're looking to start a business right now, there are businesses I've seen start and do well during COVID. I just yesterday ordered, um, actually my, my fiance got a speaker's gift, funny enough, which was a <laughs> gift card to this new organization, small company, which literally just delivers cool plants in cool pots. <laughs> that is the whole thing. So they started this Instagram. They know that a lot of people were looking for, like it was sold out everywhere in Toronto. Literally house plants were sold out everywhere. People started gardening in their homes. Like everybody was doing this in COVID. So this whole business was like, they have great, they have a great Instagram. I think they're called Foley, F-O-L-I. Mm-hmm. And you just look and you're like, I like this plant. It comes with a cool pot. And that's the whole thing. Like, you're like, good I'm for home you. 24-7, so why not? <laughs> if you're willing to do that, you know, that is like seeing the need of the time. And frankly, yeah, I think like businesses true. that have blown mm-hmm. up in the in history mm-hmm. have solved the right need at the right time. Yeah, it's true. It's like Airbnb. It's like, I mean, there are so many companies who started like at the peak of a financial crisis. And now 10 years later, or more than 10 years now, they are super successful. It's just about the idea and indeed kind of filling in a void or um, seeing the need of people and what they want. So and this is entrepreneurship. I mean, this mm-hmm. is your ability to adapt in the face of crises or your ability to, I would say, not even just adapt, man. I'd say if you really want to be a successful entrepreneur, it's actually having the forethought to plan for those things before they're even on the plate. And so entrepreneurs with really great vision, Mm -hmm. they will say, you know, actually, I think Airbnb is an interesting example because you might remember a few years ago, they actually switched over to Airbnb experiences. So now they're all, they really want to get to a place. And I had actually heard the CEO speak in their offices when I was in San Francisco. And his vision was that Airbnb gets to a point where every part of the travel experience is taken care of for you, like that you book an experience. Now, if you're a company that's focused on experiences versus physical stays and the pandemic hits, you can kind of adapt to say, we've, we've curated online experiences that are going to be so good that you're willing to, that you're going to feel like you're traveling. And so that is, um, that's kind of interesting, but I would say like, if you're going to start a tour travel, like tour company right now, probably not smart. If you're going to start something that, uh, you know, makes 
like <laughs> that doesn't make sense. That's based on physical gatherings. Like I had another friend who owns an experiential marketing agency, mm-hmm. which is quite literally the physical part of marketing. <laughs> like when you go to those, uh, you know, when there's like a display in the mall or at an event or something like that. Mm-hmm. And so he had to completely pivot to producing online events. Um, yeah. So it really depends on what exact idea you're trying to yeah. pitch right now. Mm-hmm. But I would, de- the only thing I'll say to anyone listening is as a business owner, as an entrepreneur, I encourage you to solve problems. And mm-hmm. I would encourage that you don't get so tied, like emotionally tied to how, the how you solve the problem and get emotionally tied to the, the problem. That way you're willing to adapt the strategy no matter what to reach the goal. And you're not emotionally tied to what I really wanted to be a teacher in a classroom. Mm-hmm. So let's talk a bit about the hashtag that you started, which is Save Social. Yeah, so I mentioned briefly earlier that I was working at Ryerson and responsible and for social media and telling students to get on there. And so I wanted to make sure that we could all do it safely. And at the very same time, I was noticing kind of addictive practices within myself. Um, just kind of like mindless, almost like going to check for my phone, not being there, realizing I developed habits that were not part of, we're not conscious decisions. So that led me to doing professional research, which is kind of funny because I was, my academic career has always kind of been catching up with my professional life. And so I was working as a staff at Ryerson University, but also still doing research, just not under the academic side. It's kind of confusing. Mm-hmm. And so we were looking into digital well-being and what people like most and least in, in, in different platforms. And then it really was kind of, if I'm going to be doing this research anyways, I may as well get a degree out of it. So, and because I worked for the university, they paid for it. And so that's when I started my master's um, with a focus on Again, social media's impact on mental health. And the TED Talk actually came, I did a TED Talk on this, which is probably what you saw and where I first launched hashtag safe social, which I'll explain. That, that's about three years ago, right? Yeah. So now it's funny because I believe it came out, like it went online in July, 2017. And now, um, but I, I was still in my degree at that time because I feel like I could do a whole other TED talk now, but that was really catching up with um, like, that was about my professional work that I had already done and and, and practical um, kind of application that I had already done. So that uh, whole, what I had found in my research, in my work, and even in my own life was that everybody also had very positive experiences online. And then now I can actually say 100% of my participants gave positive experiences of using social media. And I'm sure any single person listening who's on social has reasons why they're on. So even though it has negatives, there's things like communication, collaboration, inspiration, motivation, like you can keep going. Learning was a huge one. People liked connecting with communities that um, they might not otherwise have access to, giving people a voice that might not otherwise have been given a platform. So all these good things. And really my question was, how do we get this good side of social media without the risks because it really is a risky behavior like sex or drugs or alcohol and so at the end of that TED talk kind of the the sticking point if you will was if abstinence without consequence is not an option for kids of the future especially we're telling them that they have to be on there for personal branding it's best you know like this is where you're probably going to get your news these days um if we're saying you know abstinence without consequence is not an option 
And I believe we should be having a conversation about how to practice mm-hmm. safe social. <laughs> and yes, it's very much a play on safe sex, but that's kind of the point, which is that it is a risky behavior. We judge a risky behavior as something where when you participate, you expose yourself to potential harm. That's it. That's true. Especially young people, they, they, they indeed expose themselves in a way that like, you don't know who sees your profile. You don't know who, who sees what you're putting online. And I think especially for young people, it's so difficult to make them realize that social media can be a dangerous place to be. I think that what you are doing right now is such a great thing because the more people realize that they have to be aware, I think awareness is very important, what they put on social media and how they use it, that is how it can become a safer place. So I would actually say that even though I think that all of that is right, and there is a section in my five steps towards safe social about that, Mm -hmm. most of my work is usually about the self and it's usually about the mental health side of things. Mm -hmm. And I find that my adults and, you know, like my teachers, they're more concerned about almost like physical safety, but I'm, I'm trying to say to them, I'm not here to talk about cybersecurity. That's not what I'm here to do. Um, But what I am saying to them is, You need to do the, almost like the soft skills, the self-awareness beforehand so that, and you need to kind of check yourself and your mental health in response to social media. Like, is it overwhelming you? Do you feel like crap every time you go on it? Does it make you feel worse about yourself? Does it stress you out? Do you get annoyed that you feel like you really are checking all the time? Like this kind of stuff. So that's really more where I'm spending time with. And with young people, particularly, I find them, they would be less receptive if I said, you know, actually though, like this is true too. If I said like, there's people ready to get you on social media, they would care less. The risk part of their brain is not even fully developed. What they care about is themselves right now, understandably, and not even in a bad way. That's a very normal part of development. And so in order, what I try to do with young people is, is make them think about themselves, but in a critical, reflective and self-aware way so that they're actually you know, yes, you are consumed in maybe this world of social dynamics with your friends that happens to be facilitated by social media right now, but also is a very normal thing that just do that critically and make sure that it's not at your expense and that you're designing this social media experience for your mental safety as well. But then what you're saying is also totally true because sometimes I'll say to them like, you know, they're taking that selfie and they don't realize that this is just a one example, like they have a cork board and they have a postcard on that cork board that has their address on it. And so they might not realize that or like location tags or all that, that stuff too is also, you know, about kind of like physical safety too. And do you find that young people have that awareness or do you still think that they're way behind that of the people that you've met and you've spoken to? It's really funny because I actually, my favorite age range to work with and sometimes even just to talk to is 11 to 17. (laughs) I find them just so incredibly interesting and they have such a valuable perspective on the world that I find um, largely kind of just shut aside because they're young, a little bit ageist perhaps, but they, uh, you know, when I'm talking mental health, gosh, sometimes I find I have a better mental health conversation with 15-year-olds than 50-year-olds who don't have 
the language or the freedom and liberty or even just anything really like the vulnerability to understand what might be happening to them when it comes to things like anxiety, depression, frustration, whatever it might be, than a 15-year-old does today. Mm -hmm. So when I'm talking mental health, I actually have really great conversations with young people, but I will say that I also put a lot of pressure on parents and educators to understand safe social because just like any other risky behavior, teenagers still need guidance. Their brain is literally not fully developed until 25. That risk part of their brain is also not fully developed. This is super normal before social media, but now it's just, of course, they, they feel consequences, as did we all, as did I, feel consequences will not last as long or be as great. And then as you get older, you understand long-term consequences in a different way. Mm-hmm. So I really also think like my step four of um, five steps towards safe social is modeling good behavior. And that's where I'm talking a lot to parents and educators and saying, if you, you have to think about this more like you think about alcohol than you think about it like the TV. And you're modeling your relationship with social media to your kids. And are you on your phone all dinner? Even if you're emailing, you know, they're going to learn that behavior. Or have you been taking pictures of them their whole life? And maybe that's, you're actually teaching them the behavior then of capturing everything they see. And then we can, we're not even getting into like what you actually post. Like, are you complaining or spreading hate? And then you're shocked that social media is a toxic place. Like, no, you, we still are showing young people mm-hmm. what is normal here. So I just, I'm just probably ranting now. <laughs> like, no, 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 absolutely <laughs> not. But it's true. Like, you have to know how to use social media because it can be a positive thing and it can also be a negative thing. So have you heard any crazy stories from, from those young people that you've encountered with? Yeah, like I've heard like more stories than you can imagine, especially because my research was interview based. So I've heard deep stories, but I will say, um, you know, without specifics, whenever I go into a classroom, I always get to the point of the talk or the presentation or whatever it might be about uh, online harassment. And I ask, you know, who's been, who's had experiences, people will always share their experiences. And I'm talking young, like I'm talking first year and even high school too many people put up their hands. I'd say the majority of the room puts up their hand. And especially when we kind of divide it, particularly women and particularly people of color, but especially women, almost every single woman has a story of either being either super, like super serious and scary being online stalked or, you know, in the middle, which is being sent unwanted pictures and messages and harassment to, you know, being left out of groups and, um, you know, kind of more like cyber bullying stuff. And that's, that's crazy. but um, yeah, so like that should stay in people's mind mm-hmm. about how common this actually is. Even, you know, it's, we're just at a weird phase of history because we're like right now, social media has not been around long enough. So we don't have 50 year olds that can reflect on what it was like to go through puberty with it. And so they want to say things like get off social media. Oh my God, these kids these days with their head in their phone. And that really bothers me, but it's also really, really unhelpful. And, um, and also doesn't account for the fact that when you got on social media as a 40 year old, you were already developed. 
Like you were already, your brain was done (laughs) growing already. You probably, you know, felt more secure than you did as a 15 year old. You probably had your friend groups. So you got on already knowing a little bit more about what you like to see, who you want to follow, who you want to add. That didn't exist for 15 year olds. So now there's like, there's almost even like a, this cleanup stage that everybody needs to go through which is like I'm no longer friends with all these people from high school and I really kind of don't like them anymore so I need to clean them from my feeds. (laughs) Do you think that um, social media platforms do enough to provide to be a safe place or do you think that social media platforms can do more? Oh, so it's funny you ask, because my step five in Five Steps Towards Safe Social is to hold the responsible parties accountable. Mm -hmm. And those parties include, you know, parents and educators, like I mentioned, but also it includes governments and it includes the social media companies themselves. Because for something like Facebook or Google or, you know, now Instagram, if they're, if it's kind of a general rule of thumb is if it's free, you are the product and Um, That's because, and this is actually true, overwhelmingly Google and Facebook make most of their money from advertising dollars, Mm -hmm. which means in any other risky behavior, if you are making your money off of getting people addicted, that's the goal, right? If advertising is the driver, then the goal is consumption. Then, Then you have a responsibility to make sure that they can do it safely. Just the same as we require that cigarette packs here in Canada have to have a warning picture, like all this stuff that alcohol has limitations that you're not allowed to advertise on certain, um, um, like, like channels, let's just say you're not allowed to have. So all this stuff is, um, is policy on the companies themselves. And then the companies I'm sure you've seen recently, probably there's actually been more pressure on these companies to sort their stuff out. But like, it's not a secret anymore that, you know, for instance, Facebook, they sell our data. It's not a secret that they do that. And even though we know that, a lot of people don't seem to care. A lot of people think, oh, let them, you know, sell whatever they want. But they, like, they don't know the ramifications of doing that. They don't know what the, like, these companies get from their personal data that's so crazy. I mean, to be honest, like when I go and I talk about people's concerns about social media, it is generational. Um, when I ask older folks, usually their main concern is usually um, cybersecurity data protection. And they want to talk about this. And that has never come up with young people. <laughs> their main concern is always mental health related mm-hmm. and body image related and that sort of stuff. And um, And you have to understand like, if you're in first year, even second year university now, it is possible that you do not know life before 9-11, which means here in North America, you have always kind of thought that the government was watching you. This sounds so strange, but it does, it actually matters because it's like a joke. Like people, even me growing up, you know, it'd be a joke when you're texting. Oh, sorry, government. I didn't mean that. Like, you know, people would say this stuff. So I think they also just really care less because they've always kind of thought if I'm on social media, obviously. Yeah, that's a normal thing. Yeah, because they don't know anything else. They don't know the consequences of this yet because it hasn't been around long enough. It just hasn't. So we, um, I'm, 
like advertising, I feel like I understand the agreement that I've entered into, which is, yes, I've given you my data, but I'm getting a service out of this. So I'm going to make damn sure that this is a positive experience for me because I'm paying for it in a way, right? Mm-hmm. By seeing your dumb ads. <laughs> no, it's so, like, but it's sometimes those ads, I'm, I'm so funny because it's like, I mean, I laugh because sometimes these ads, it's like, yeah, the, I was searching for that. Thank you for showing me this. And they pop up. Yeah, that's crazy. Like, sometimes you just think of a product or something and it pops up in your feed. That's creepy. But I think people, <laughs> I think what people don't realize with that is like, no, it's not inside your brain yet. It might be listening, but, um, but if you're mentioning, if you're, people don't realize like how they subconsciously behave in a way that supports their thoughts. And so that's why if you actually look into things like manifestation or the power of suggestion, there's actually a lot of work there and there's still a lot we don't understand about the brain, but people will behave in magnificent ways subconsciously to align with their with what they want. So it might even be as simple as like, oh my gosh, I was saying curtains, curtains, curtains. And then I got an ad for it. It's like, you, you might've also liked a couple photos or spent a longer period of time on interior decor. You might've clicked one to see where they got those curtains and not remember that. Yeah. So yeah. it's very interesting. It's super interesting, but I think social listening is like, um, or I mean, like Crazy. literal listening might be also happening, but <laughs> it's it's really so crazy to think about that everything that we say or do and our our behavior, everything is is being watched. It's just a strange time for sure. I think that um, especially here in North America, we are actually probably behind places like the UK and the, and well, the EU really in general about things like data protection and privacy. And I actually reference the EU quite a bit in step five when you're holding governments accountable for this because um, one example would be, I mentioned about advertising. And um, and so like, this is not new. Like in, in lots of history of our countries, we have policed or, you know, added policy, whatever you want to call it, to both media and to risky behaviors. Mm-hmm. So for example, alcohol, cigarettes, they are not allowed to advertise on children's TV here in Canada. And I think it's the same in um, most of the Western world. So mm-hmm. you're not allowed to do that. Yet the same companies can go to Facebook and target 13-year-olds with vaping and pharmaceuticals and all this stuff. That's policy because that's and what the EU is doing that Canada needs to do and I think many countries need to do is what they're saying is, okay, Facebook, Google, you need to figure your shit out because if you're servicing and you're making money off of people in our country, you need to figure out how to follow our rules. That's what we're doing from now on. Whereas what was happening previously in this online world was saying, you know, Facebook is they have offices in this country and they have their head office in this country. So because they're based there, they only have to follow those rules. And, and now what countries are starting to say is, I don't care where you're based. If you are making money off of our people and the content is coming to our country, you need to figure out how to follow our rules. And I think that is, um, that's the way to go. 
So I'm going to switch gears a bit. Um, I would like to go back and talk a bit more about um, entrepreneurship because I think now more than ever, there's so many people who ditch their nine to five job. But what advice do you have for people who who are kind of in that place in between, I want to start something, but I'm too scared, but I still want to do it, but I'm going to fail. You know, like people who are just so over their heads um, and they're not confident enough. Definitely have uh, suggestions for sure, because I think I had like a very particular route to finding entrepreneurship. I, um, I actually worked, I mentioned at Ryerson, but I actually worked full time. Well, like, I worked at Ryerson and built my business on the side for probably two and a half years. So what I would suggest is um, there's kind of this like, I don't know, like stigma where because of tech companies and this whole like, oh, fail fast, fail early, like Mm. um, give it everything you got or you're not going to succeed. Like there's this kind of culture sometimes where I just roll my eyes because entrepreneurship is literally the oldest profession that exists. So many people have found many ways to be an entrepreneur. There is not just one. And if you need to work to figure it out because no one like me is going to pay your groceries, that is fine. So if you want to test something, I, I, here's like some recommendations if you want to make it easier for yourself. But I had my day job, my day job, but I had actually a lot of liberty. So this really helped too, if it's possible. I had a lot of liberty with my schedule And with like, so I could basically control my time even back then. And um, so I could kind of do, you know, if I had to work at 11 PM on one, they didn't really care. So that was really great. But even if I had to do sort of like the standard nine to five ish type deal, things that helped me were that my day job was very similar to my business. So I never felt when I was there, I never felt like, oh my gosh, I'm just using my life up for nothing. I'm wasting time. Like I actually was learning things there that immediately helped my business Hmm. um, and vice versa. I would learn things through my company and through working with other organizations that I would immediately bring back to my work at the university. And it was really this kind of like symbiotic relationship. So if there's a way that you can work, even if it's not your current job, but you need money, work in some job that's even remotely in the same industry, or you're going to learn things that will help you or meet people that will be useful later. Mm -hmm. Like try that. Um, The other thing I would say is, is you can do tests. (laughs) Like if, if you're on the opposite end and you don't know exactly that you are, you're sure you're not sure that this is the business for you. You can do things like I did public speaking. I, before I launched the business, I started doing some workshops on things like personal branding and um, more so like professional communication back then to see if it went even like if it was going to go well before I put my whole name out there as like, this is my business, leaving my, leaving my company, taking the leap. And the third thing that I did, which a lot of people don't do, but like I said, I didn't have anybody else that was going to pay my bills. So I, uh, where I felt comfortable was having about a year's worth of salary and overhead in the business's bank account before I made the leap to full-time. I knew that what would happen was like, I ended up leaving a bit before that because as planned, the business was growing and requiring more of my capacity. And I just, and it was kind of going like this, like, 
So I needed to make a choice, but um, I had, I knew that um, if I just know myself and I knew that if I was worried about paying rent, like I wouldn't, I wouldn't be as scared about sales or, you know, I wouldn't be, sorry, um, the opposite, (laughs) the opposite. If I was worried about paying rent, it would be very hard to focus on building a business. Whereas when I went full time, I had, I made sure that I had a bit of runway in the bank account so that I can take care of myself. And finally, the last thing was that fear, I believe, Mm -hmm. even subconscious didn't feel like it was not conscious. I didn't, I would never associate that with myself. Fear of failure might prevent you. And I think it prevented me for a while because I had this one (laughs) mentorship kind of like, I don't know, lunch with a mentor. And I remember him saying to me, I was like, I want to go full-time with skills camp. This is like 20... I think I was talking about 2018. I was like, in 2018, I want to go full time, but I just don't know how to get there. And he's like, okay, what is the worst case scenario for you? And I was like, okay, well, you know, what, what if I can't pay rent? Mm. And that was worst case scenario. And he's like, okay, so then what would you do? And I was like, in my head, this was so not an option. I was, this is not an option, but what I would be doing is it's like, I guess I would have to move back in with my dad. Um, like he lives uh, maybe like 45 minutes outside the city drive in the suburbs. So I was like, I probably have to move back in with him and like get a job. And he's like, I was like, but this is, I can't do that. And he said, well, okay. So you wouldn't be on the streets. I was like, no. He's like, so you would have a place to eat and sleep and you're very employable. So you could just get another job. And I was like, yeah. (laughs) So I realized kind of through that conversation and then reflecting on it afterwards that what the real failure was probably for me having to say, having to like publicly say, here's what I'm doing. And if it doesn't succeed, Mm-hmm. everybody knows why you're taking a job. That was probably really more what I was um, subconsciously couldn't, couldn't take. And um, six months later, I left and haven't turned back. Oh, great. But I think most people have that fear of failure because, I mean, you also have to sacrifice something in order to achieve another thing. Yeah, because I think like one of the sacrifices that you were talking about, and, and I think you're totally right, which is like there is going to be a sacrifice somewhere whether it's time-based or relationship-based or for me is like, I would be a lot wealthier right now if I didn't build skills camp, (laughs) but I also wouldn't be because I wouldn't be building net worth and I wouldn't be building like the wealth that's in the business, but my personal bank accounts for sure, they'd be better. (laughs) And so there is like that kind of sacrifice. I have less time for people in my life, period. The people that stay in my life are the ones where we can go months without seeing each other and it's exactly the same. So that's just what it is. So we've established that you are a powerful woman. What does a powerful woman look like for you? Um, When I call someone, like when I think about power, I just think about, yeah, there's like the traditional almost like your ability to yield influence. Um, but which comes with, there's like lots of elements of influence if you're interested in this kind of theory. But I also just, I think of like a person who has, who sees a goal and makes it happen. Like at any cost and, or at any, like they're willing to bounce back from failure, super resilient, resourceful. 
and they just have this like grit. Mm. So that's almost like when I think about powerful women, I think like even, you know, my mom who really had nothing and has seen the worst of life. I think of her as like super powerful because she always made it happen no matter what. Like we probably all have like a mom story for sure. Cause they're the best, but, but um, yeah, I think for me, it's just like, what are you going to do? So life threw you an L, how are you going to respond to that? Like mm-hmm. that kind of stuff is what I think about when I think about power. It really is how you respond to adversity. So in the end, um, I always ask all of my guests a couple of questions. We call this the roundup kind of section. <laughs> so um, what do you like the most about yourself? Mm, mm, I'm very sure of myself. Mm, that's awesome. Fairly confident, but I'm also like very secure. That's a good place to be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's like my because you, you kind of think about everybody should ask themselves this question is what's your favorite compliment to receive and like when someone tells you this thing about yourself you're just like you remember it forever and oh and like people have told me that I'm one of the most self-assured people that they know and that always stuck in my head as like that means something to me because it's like one of the compliments I remember most so clearly that's important to me you know So, I mean, in our society, um, success mostly means having money, you know, being rich or being famous or whatever it is. But I think that every individual has their own definition of success. So um, I want to know yours. What is your definition of success? Yeah, it's funny because I actually have, you can't see it over there, but over there is actually like a vision board slash collage. (laughs) And um, so success for me, I think is I always have, like, I have a very specific scenario in mind. I want to have enough wealth that I can do the things that I want to do, support the people in my life. I think everybody wants this, but um, without, you know, like, without consequence. And I have this scenario in my head, which is, like, if someone asked me on a Thursday, it's so specific, but I think we should all have these for manifestation purposes. If somebody asked me on a Thursday, hey, do you want to go away to the Bahamas for the weekend? That no matter what phase I'm at in my life, that I can say yes. Like I want to get to the point where I have enough money, where I've designed a life where I control my time or like, you know, I don't, I have either like really good staff or really good people who who have got it, that we can help each other, that my family, like I could afford for them to come that kind of thing. Like my family's really, really large. And I even have on the vision board, like I want to be able to take them on vacations. That's it because it's so large. It's not going to happen soon. (laughs) Really large family. You have like five sisters and four parents. So. Okay. That's indeed a large. (laughs) Anyways. Yeah. So success for me is kind of like making those happen. And I have to constantly reevaluate when they do happen. So if you could switch lives or careers with someone it could be anyone. Who would it be? Oh, that's interesting. Uh, probably like a Brene Brown. Oh, interesting. Yeah, because I like the combination of scholar, researcher, but also speaker, educator, and like helper. <laughs> mm. I have so many quotes of hers, like on my notebook everywhere. <laughs> on my also phone. that, I mean, that's the I don't know because it changes all the time because I'm like I also wouldn't want to be like a motivational speaker it's just not who I I think I'm like motivation as a 
byproduct. I don't think I'm necessarily would classify myself as my intention to be an inspirational speaker, but, um, so I, maybe not that part, but it changes all the time. Like I find new people and I'm like, oh, that's cool. <laughs> like, you know, so yeah. No, completely. Um, so is there a tagline or a quote that you love or that you live by maybe? Uh, no, I don't have, I don't really have a mantra other than I always, like in my life, nothing has replaced hard work. So sometimes I go back to that kind of cliche genius is 90 is 1% inspiration and 99% perspiration. And I just see it so much in my life that people have an idea and they're just not willing to put in the work. They're just not willing to turn off Netflix. They want to be fit. They're just not willing to get up early enough to do it. Um, and so when you are self-aware and I want to say self-assured to some, you're willing to understand what you're willing to give up. And you're like, and I know for sure right now in my life, I am never going to be mega fit. <laughs> like, I'm just not like, I, I know there are other things I prioritize more when I work out, I work out. So my body, which is daily, but I, I work out so that my body doesn't fall apart. And so that I can drink wine, not like, like that is the motivator. <laughs> so kind of like just accepting that about yourself. And, but again, like, I don't want my, I want to be healthy. I don't really want to be like a, like I'm never going to be a fitness model. And that's totally cool.